Good morning. Good to be with all of you this morning. Grab your Bibles, go with me to John chapter 14, and I owe you an apology. Last Sunday, I told you Easter was six weeks away, and my math was wrong. Easter is four weeks away, okay? So we're getting really, really close, and uh, I'm really excited. Of course, Easter at Prestonwood is such a great celebration. It will begin for us on Friday night with our Good Friday service at 6.30 p.m. So make sure you mark your calendars. Join us for our Good Friday celebration at 6.30 p.m. And then here at the north campus of our church, we are going to have five Easter celebrations through the weekend. So two on Saturday night, five and 6.30, and then three on Sunday morning, our regular rhythm of 8.30, 10, and 11.30. And my request of you is this. If you call Prestonwood Church your home, I'm asking you that you would attend one and serve one. And I know Easter is a major weekend and many of you are already making plans to gather with family and friends and celebrate the resurrection. And that is amazing and awesome and yes, would you please attend one and serve one? We're going to need your help uh, to be able to meet the needs and to be hospitable toward all the guests that God is going uh, to entrust to us that weekend. And so it's going to be a major weekend, so much fun. Please make plans now to attend and to join us for the Easter celebration. As you just saw from that sermon bumper, we're still in our series, Tell Me the Story of Jesus. And uh, today's passage in John chapter 14 is probably going to feel a little familiar to you if you have ever attended a Christian funeral. Because oftentimes, John chapter 14 is the funeral passage that is easily preached, it is helpfully taught at the funeral services for people who belong uh, to God. And, and the truth is, um, the reason why John 14 is such a significant passage providing for us what I have identified as the hope of heaven is because it is a uniquely Christian doctrine to hold on to the reality that we by faith in Jesus Christ, are afforded an eternal life with God. Every system of belief around the world holds to some type, at least generally speaking, of eternal, uh, of a view of eternity spent somewhere. But it is uniquely Christian to understand the doctrine of heaven and that our understanding of everlasting life is a union with God in glory. Unlike other systems of belief, Christianity holds to that exclusively. For example, Hinduism believes in reincarnation. And when an individual has uh, achieved enough good karma, then they are given some type of an eternal connection, restoration uh, with God. And until that takes place, that individual is reincarnated into a different life over and over and over again. Uh, Buddhism believes that nirvana which is their version of glory or uh, of, uh, of eternal life, can be achieved by an individual following an eightfold path of obedience. Mormonism believes that uh, there are different levels of heaven that can be achieved through uh, some type of religious accomplishment. Atheism thinks there is no heaven at all. And Christianity believes that God has provided us heaven through his work by sending his son to achieve for us something we would be unable to provide for ourselves. And 
The significance of John 14 is unique for us today because it really piggybacks on where we finished our conversation last Sunday in John chapter 13. So in John chapter 14, Jesus is going to speak with a a tenderness and, and a kindness in the midst of a circumstance that was pretty chaotic to say the least. Do you remember what happened last Sunday? Things got pretty awkward, right? So Jesus washed the disciples' feet in that upper room moment. There's a, a kind of a sensitivity and a, and a seriousness to that moment. And Jesus displays servant leadership and he washes the disciples' feet. And then Jesus speaks the truth. And he says, one of you that's reclining with me at dinner, one of you having supper tonight is going to betray me. And then all of a sudden, Judas dips his bread into the cup. And that was the signal, the symbol by which they would understand who it was that was going to betray Jesus. And he gets up and leaves. And the Bible says, and it was dark. And it's really not a description of nighttime as much as the weightiness of the moment, that there was like a feeling of darkness. And then immediately following that, Peter is having this moment of confusion. And he's like, Jesus, you're talking about some really heavy things here. You're talking with a finality of life, and you're not talking about uh, coming right, right back. And, and, and we've been with you for the last three years, and so where are you going to go? And, and Jesus responds at the end of chapter 13, says, where I'm going to go, you're not going to be able to go with me. You'll join me sometime later. And Peter's like, I'll go anywhere with you, anytime with you. I will give my life for you. And Jesus is like, hey, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three different times. So there was a heaviness and a seriousness uh, to this upper room discourse, this dinner table conversation, and it only got heavier. It only got more serious uh, the further they got into the conversation. And that leads us to John chapter 14, and what we're going to see Jesus does is he wades into that heaviness. He wades into that moment, and he provides a kindness and a clarity that is so needed and necessary in that moment to provide the disciples the calmness that that situation was desperately missing right then. And in fact, we've probably all had like serious moments, like you've all had like really heavy moments in your life. And, and then an authority steps into that space and speaks with a kindness and a clarity and a sensitivity. And all of a sudden, it at least gives you the glimpse that you're going to be able to get through it. You know what I'm saying? That's what we are seeing here. I can remember in 2018 when our Hannah got so sick, and when I took her to the emergency room, the uh, a doctor that was there, the resident, uh, was unable to successfully intubate her after multiple attempts over and over and over again. Well, the doctor who was a friend of mine that worked in that ER, I had called him earlier, and he rushed into the room, and then he scrubbed in, and then he was able to successfully intubate her after about five or six failed attempts prior to that. And, and so as soon as he gets her intubated, they hook her up to the machine and her breathing begins to slow. He just walked over to the foot of the bed. Of course, I was hysterical, right? And he just put his hand on my shoulder and he says, Connor, we can get her to Dallas now. And, and in that moment with that weightiness and the heaviness of that uh, circumstance, for him to speak as the authority with such a kindness and a clarity, it just provided for me this understanding, okay, I can get through this. And that's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus does. That's what we're going to see. And that is the significance of having the Christian belief that we have a hope of heaven. So this sermon today is going to be centered and built around that 
idea. And it's going to be slightly more structured because we're going to read and stop and talk, read and stop and talk, read and stop and talk. So if you're a note taker, this will bless you. And if you're left-brained, I just apologize in advance, okay? This is John chapter 14, starting in verse 1. John chapter 14, starting in verse 1. If you're there, say, I got it. Jesus speaks and he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, if you mark or highlight in your Bibles, I want you to circle or underline the word believe. It's found twice in those two sentences in John 14, 1. The first reason why you and I can be a people who hold on to the hope of heaven is because Jesus provides peace. Now think about what it is that he says, and again, I just set the context for the heaviness of the moment in which he says it, but Jesus speaks and he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Do you know what Jesus is saying? Don't freak out. That's what he's saying. He's saying, calm down. And listen, they had every reason to be anything other than calm. Because Jesus has just said some really heavy things. He's talking with a finality to his life. One of the guys that you've been doing life with for the last several years has betrayed him. And then Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. And I want to draw your attention specifically to why it is that Jesus says the disciples don't have to let their hearts be troubled. Why it is that they don't have to be overcome with fear. Because pay attention to this. Jesus doesn't say, let not your hearts be troubled. Because at the end of the day, this just isn't that big a deal. He doesn't say that. Jesus never says, let not your hearts be troubled, because I promise you, it's fixing to get really, really good. Because it wasn't. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, because you can trust me. In fact, the reason I had you underline or circle that word believe is because it's the same Greek word for trust. And that's what Jesus means for us to see. We don't have to let the circumstances dictate our fear. They don't have to control our anxiety. Why? Because we can trust Jesus in the midst of it. He says, you trusted God and now I'm calling you to trust in me. And listen, I believe God has a word here for someone this morning. You are in your own season of suffering. You are in your own circumstance of chaos. You are feeling your own upper room anxiety right now. This morning, you are riddled with this feeling of fear, this concern because of what is still unknown. And Jesus is telling you, You don't have to let your heart be troubled. You can trust me in the middle of it. He doesn't say, let not your hearts be troubled. You're going to be fine. He never says, let not your hearts be troubled. This isn't a big deal. He says, you can trust me regardless of whether those two things are true. You can trust in God. And when you think about the peace that Jesus provides, pay attention to its momentary benefit rooted in its eternal blessing. You see, it's the gospel of Jesus that provides a promise that God has accomplished a work which guarantees a day of eternal peace through Jesus. But there is a circumstantial peace that is available even in the midst of the chaos right now. Like Jesus never left. He spoke this truth across the table in the midst of the upper room difficulty. And he is right next to you in the midst of your chaos as well. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. You trusted in God and you can trust in me. Jesus reminds us that he provides us a peace. Yes, there is an eternal peace 
through Jesus Christ. And there is a circumstantial benefit that comes when we choose to believe in him. There are far too many times when I have let my circumstances dictate my confidence. Anybody? Instead of trusting in Jesus in the middle of them. Let's keep reading. Pick it up in verse 2. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So the second reason why we can have the hope of heaven is because not only does Jesus provide peace, but he provides the place. Jesus provides the place. Now, what I'm about to say is not in any way intended to hurt anyone's feelings or ruin anyone's favorite hymns, okay? But I want to point something out to you, okay? In the original language, the word there for uh, rooms has been translated in some Bibles as mansions. But the best translation or rendering of that word in the original language is abodes or dwelling or space. In other words, Jesus says he's going to prepare a place for us and that God has made space for us. That God has made room. And this matters, family, because we do not want a poor theology to creep into and corrupt the good and right and biblical understanding of heaven. Heaven is amazing because it's the eternal dwelling place of God. And by faith, we have been invited into that place through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Heaven is amazing because Jesus is there. Not because we get a big house or some earthly understanding of luxury. And I've spoken to you before uh, in John chapter 14 about the understanding of this idea place that Jesus speaks of. And I think there's two ways in which we need to understand what Jesus means when he's talking about the place. He says again in verse 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. So when we understand this idea of place, let me explain it to you what I believe Jesus means in two ways. The first is the place of preparation. Now, when Jesus is talking about the place, the place of preparation is Calvary's cross. That's where Jesus is about to go. He's headed to Golgotha. He's headed to the skull. He is headed to Calvary to die on a wooden cross to atone for the sins of the world. So there is a place of preparation where Jesus is headed. And that's what he's talking about when he says, I'm going to prepare. I'm going to a place of preparation. That is Calvary's cross. The second meaning of place is the place of destination. And that is heaven. That is the eternal dwelling place of God. That's why Jesus said, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. There is a lot of space. And because I'm going to the place of preparation, you'll get to experience the place of destination. You with me? And this is what he means. And it's important that we understand this. Otherwise, we'll try to import a bad Western theology onto heaven where the only way it can be good is if we have some type of mansion that Jesus has gone to build for us. So um, how many of you have ever watched the show Fixer Upper? Okay, a ton of us, right? I grew up in Waco long before Chip and Joanna made it cool. I, I'm old school. I'm an OG from Waco, okay? And so, uh, but you've seen that television show. Well, I think that there is a, 
a bad understanding that we have imported into the doctrine of heaven where we think that it's a fixer-upper, right? That Jesus is like, I, I'm, I'm going to go to my father's house. He's got a lot of room, but I got to get it ready. I need some shiplap. We're going to paint the brick, <laughs> right? Listen, heaven is no fixer-upper. It's the eternal dwelling place of God. Heaven is amazing because God is there. Right? And we need to understand that when Jesus says, in my Father's house, there's a lot of room, there's a lot of space, it's because Jesus has gone to the place of preparation and made sure that we are invited to that place of destination, which is the eternal dwelling place, us with God. That's what he means. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. Pick it up in verse 3. Some of you are so disappointed. You're like, I wanted shiplap. Now just relax. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Here's the third reason why Christians uniquely can have the hope of heaven. Not only does Jesus provide peace and the place of preparation and destination, but he provides a promise. A promise. This is something wonderful that we can hold on to. Jesus promises that just as he came once, he is coming again. This is the clearest New Testament example that we have from Jesus about his second coming, about his return. That Jesus promises that he will ransom his church, he will establish his eternal kingdom, he will finally rid the world of Satan, his servant, their works, and the effects that sin and evil have had on the creation of God. Listen, he came the first time as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's coming the next time as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And he's going to make all things new. And he's coming again. This is the most holy I'll be back statement in all of human history. Everybody's immediately drawing on your Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? When he says in Terminator, anybody ever seen Terminator? You just sold yourselves out. You saw an R-rated movie. That's on you. That's on you. <laughs> so he says, I'll be back, right? You remember that. The most holy I'll be back ever is this one. When Jesus says, um, and, and, and if I go, I'm, I'm coming again. And think about what it is that he has done for us. Like I was thinking about, um, there have been um, maybe times as parents where you, you've had to say, tell your kids, just stay right here, stay right here. I'm just going to run in, in there. I'm just going to run back and I'm take care of this. And, and your children are like, no, 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 don't leave, don't leave. And I just say, I'll be right back, I'll be right back. But now think about this. Jesus is telling his disciples um, and, and if I go and prepare this place for you, I'm going to come again. He's saying, I'll, I'll be right back. But in his goodness and his grace and his abundant love for the church, he's given us his Holy Spirit to be with us while we wait for his return. So we literally have the very power of God that resurrected Jesus from the dead to hang on to, to abide in while we wait in the interim until Jesus comes back. Supernatural, overwhelming resurrection power in his church. And Jesus says, if I go, I'm coming again. And I'm going to take you to myself that where I am, you will be also. Pick it up in verses 4 through 6. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? 
And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. The fourth reason why the church, why Christians can uniquely hold on to the hope of heaven beyond the peace, beyond the place, beyond the promise is because Jesus is the person. He is the person. This is certainly, John 14, 6, the most familiar verse in all of the chapter, and for good reason. Because the answer to Thomas' question about the certainty of Jesus as the only means of salvation puts to rest any serious biblical question about the exclusivity of Jesus. And church family, I I think it is so important that we understand in a culture that celebrates universalism, we must anchor ourselves on the essentialism of the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only means by which a person can have sin forgiven and be given life everlasting with God. So I understand of the popularity behind universalism, that what works for you is what works for you, and what works for you is what works for you, and what works for you is what works for you. This is what works for me. But universalism sends people to hell. It is the essentialism of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only means by which a person can have sin forgiven and be given life everlasting with God. And Jesus makes very clear statements about his provision of himself as that only means for salvation. He says, I am the way. Again, in the original language, it's crystal clear, singular. I am the way, not a way, not a better way, not one of many ways. Jesus said, I am the way, the way. And then he goes on and he says, I am the truth, not a version of truth, right? Not a convenient truth. Jesus said, I am the way and I am the truth. And then he says, and I am the life. The life. Not a life, not a good life, not a bad life, but the life. Talking about everlasting life. And just in case the disciples would be tempted to misunderstand what it is he's talking about, he clarifies in his following sentence. And no one comes to the Father except through me. It is the clearest picture we have in the New Testament from Jesus about the necessity for a person to place faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of sin in order to be given life everlasting with God. It's the reason why sometimes when this particular sermon is preached at a Christian funeral, you might see people faced with an opportunity to respond and exercise faith for the first time to believe in that. Because funerals tend to cause people to become more keenly aware of their own individual mortality. Because we're all faced with the recognition that life is finite. That there is a beginning and there will, in fact, be an end. And imagine, I was reading this morning about someone who um, is battling cancer again and... and, uh, And I was just thinking about this illustration. Imagine if someone contracted a disease and the only only possible cure for that disease um, was known. There was one. There was the only means of treatment. It was the 
only uh, possible cure. And imagine how we would feel about a doctor who was willing for an individual that was sick with that disease to pursue any other type of alternative treatment, knowing that there was only one way for that person to be cured. How would we feel about that doctor? Right? Here's what we have to understand. Everybody has to hear this. We're all sick with sin. It is the one disease that is common to all humanity. And the only cure is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For his life lived that we couldn't. For his death died that we deserved. And for his resurrection and victory that achieves for us life everlasting with God. That is the cure for the disease that plagues all people everywhere. You don't know a person who is not sick with sin. And the only means for cure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is to believe in Jesus to heal you. And just as we would feel terrible about a doctor who was peddling a variety of treatments that we know would not cure, that is the same way we should feel about universalism that tries to perpetuate there are any number of ways by which a person can enter into a right relationship with God. You with me? And so Jesus makes crystal clear what it is that he's saying. He is the person that we must exercise faith to believe in in order to experience eternal life and a right relationship with God. And that leads us to the last, verses 7 through 11. Jesus speaks and he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now watch this. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. I would say the last reason why Christians uniquely against any other system of belief that there is can have the hope of heaven is because Jesus provides the personal relationship. He provides the personal relationship. This is where I want to drill down and get specific with you today. You see, in the first 11 verses of John chapter 14, Jesus makes it crystal clear that God is not distant and far away, but rather he has drawn near so that we can know him personally intimately. Think about the nature of the conversation itself. John took the time to record that this was Jesus and Philip. It was personal. I mean, there's just a few of them in the room having dinner together. Things have already gotten really, really awkward, and Jesus has tried to step into that moment and provide some peace. But now all of a sudden, he's sitting across the table, and he's looking eye to eye with Philip, and Philip's like, man, we don't know. We don't know what it is that you're doing, we don't know where it is that you're going. Show us, show us the Father, show us God. And Jesus, is like, you're looking at him. Like right here, right now, Philip, you're looking at him. And I believe in a very real way, in the same way that Jesus was looking across the table at Philip, I believe the Holy Spirit of God is looking at some of you. Absolutely. Again, in these first 11 verses, 25 times. Jesus refers to himself 
in the first person, I, me, or my. 17 times he directly refers to the disciple, you or yours. 17 times, 25 times, it is obvious that this is personal. That there is, every person has to make an individual determination as to what they're going to do with God. The gospel isn't salvation built around a distant belief in a God we will never know. It is everlasting life rooted in a personal conviction by a personal relationship with a God who died for us so we would know. It's personal. And if you want to know God, trust in Jesus. If you want a relationship with your heavenly Father who loves you, believe in the Son who died for you. There are some of us who feel like God is so far away we can't ever truly know him. But Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And we can absolutely know him if we will only choose to believe in him. I have conversations with friends of mine in ministry that serve in churches at different parts of the country. And one of the uh, ways in which we banter back and forth is, where is it more difficult to do evangelism, in your context or in mine? And I have friends that serve in churches on the coasts. I have friends that serve in churches in urban areas. And when they ask me, man, it must be easy to preach the gospel and to do evangelism where you are, Connor, because it's in the buckle of the Bible belt and there's a church on every street. And I said, that's the exact reason why it's hard. Because you're preaching to a people who have grown up hearing about the things of God, hearing about the person of Jesus, but because of the financial success and the cultural conveniences, don't really understand of their own personal need for him. And so church is a, a box that we check. Jesus is a good man that we know, but he isn't truly the Lord in whom we trusted and that we believe will save This is our own funeral service. Everybody in this room needs to be keenly aware. You are now 34 minutes closer to heaven or hell than you were when I got up here. And you have to ask yourself this question. Do I have the hope of heaven? Do I have the hope of heaven because I have a personal relationship with God through my own faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? You're not going to get to heaven because of your parents' faith or your grandparents' faith, because of how you vote or the morals that you hold. The only means by which a person can have the hope of heaven is through the exercising of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive your sin and give you life everlasting with him. You see, um, my big kids, my daughter is in college, my son is in high school, and Sometimes when they take exams, uh, their teacher, if they, if they haven't done well on the exam, their teacher will allow them extra credit, right? So maybe they can uh, come in for tutoring, or maybe they can turn in supplemental assignments, or maybe they can complete a reading program or a reading list. And, and then through that extra work, they can add that to their examination grade and cause it to be uh, good enough to, uh, to pass. And I think, sadly, we, we bring that understanding to our theology. And, and I will tell you this. Your relationship with God is 100% pass-fail. And there is no extra credit. And it doesn't matter how much 
you think you've done or how much you think you haven't done. The answer as to whether or not you pass and are in right relationship with God is totally up to your exercising of your faith to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. Otherwise, you fail if you believe in anything less than that. Anything. And so every single Sunday when we preach this series, we ask the question, what are you going to do with Jesus? And I believe Jesus is having a fill-up conversation with every single one of you. And I happen to believe that in this room there are enough of us that there are some of you who are here and you would have to admit that you don't have the hope of heaven. You do not have the hope of heaven. You do not have a saving, personal relationship with God through your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I am here to tell you that you can. That you can. If you will choose today to admit that you are a sinner, confess your sin to God and believe in Jesus as your Savior and totally trust Him. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and trust also in me. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the Bible says your sins are forgiven and you are going to have the hope of heaven. Life everlasting with God. And if that is you and you are here today, then why would you leave without having taken care of that? Others of you, you are here and you're thinking, well, this doesn't have anything to do with me because I gave my life to Jesus a long time ago. I would tell you because you gave your life to Jesus a long time ago, this has everything to do with you. Because there isn't a person in this room who doesn't know someone who is far from God. Or at least you've wondered whether or not they have a personal relationship with him. Maybe they're a client, maybe they're a patient, maybe they're a neighbor, maybe it's a son or a daughter, a mom or a dad, an aunt or an uncle, a classmate, a teammate, or a friend. You know someone who doesn't have the hope of heaven, and you do. It's like sitting in the waiting room of a doctor's office knowing that that physician is peddling medicine that's not going to heal. And we'll hold their hand while they die. But if we know that Jesus Christ is the cure, then it's incumbent upon us to tell the world that we have a hope of heaven and they can too. And so there isn't a person in this room that doesn't need this message that Jesus Christ gives. And so the question is, what are we going to do with it, right? So if you're new to Prestonwood or maybe you're new to our church or our method or model of ministry, you might even be wondering, why is it that every Sunday the pastor gives an invitation? It's because Jesus said in the New Testament that if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. And so I believe that we have an opportunity and a responsibility to respond. And we would never do anything ever to embarrass someone. But if you have a prayer need or if you want to join our church or if you need to give your life to Jesus Christ or like those we saw in the baptistry today, if you need to be baptized because God has already saved then I'm inviting you to come forward. I'm inviting you to come and to tell one of our volunteers or staff members about the decision that you have made. And we're going to be quick to celebrate God and to celebrate you and to come alongside you in wherever it is that you are. That's the reason why we do what we do is because I want to give you an opportunity to respond. I believe it is irresponsible for us to preach the truth and leave the room feeling like, okay, what's next? 
So depending upon where you are in your journey with Jesus, you have an invitation and an opportunity to respond. If you want to pray for a friend who is far from God, if you want to ask God to give you an opportunity for a bold conversation that you know is needed in your home or whatever it is that God has spoken to your heart, this is the invitation and the opportunity for you to respond to that. So I'm going to pray. When I say amen, we'll stand, we'll sing, and the invitation will be yours to do. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for the hope that of, of heaven that he provides. God, I pray now that we would be a people who experience peace because you've gone to the place, made the promise. Jesus, you're the person, and now we have a personal relationship with you. I pray for every man and woman, boy and girl in this room, God, that we would all be faced with the reality to ask the question, do I have the hope of heaven? Thank you for Jesus who provides that for us. We pray these things in his good name, in Jesus' name, amen.